One of the more well-known occasions in church history was the meeting between Martin Luther and Huldrych Zwingli. It occurred in Marburg in 1529. It's referred to as the Marburg Colloquy. It was an occasion that provided an opportunity for two leaders of the Reformation, two leaders of the Reformation who were leading the Reformation, as it were, in different places. It was an opportunity for them to come together to kind of unite and create a kind of shared, creedal, and theological position. So like Luther, Zwingli had left Roman Catholicism. But unlike Luther... Zwingli did not believe Luther's position as it related to the Lord's Supper. Luther had a position with regards to the Lord's Supper that believed that the corporeal body of the Lord Jesus Christ was in, with, and under the bread. Zwingli had a position that was seeing the Lord's table more as a sign, as a memorial. And he affirmed the reality of the Lord's presence among his people by faith and so on. But there was a divide between the two of them in that regard. So as the two spoke together and they had um, representatives with them of their two positions and so on, as they spoke together, there was agreement on so many facets of theology. But when it came to this matter, some in the historical record note that Luther repeated the phrase, hoc est corpus meum. Quoting from the Latin Vulgate, this is my body. Said it out loud, took a piece of chalk, wrote it on the table. And I think that's what it could be like sometimes when you talk to people about the doctrine of limited atonement. They may in their minds just have verses of scripture like, for God so loved the world. And you really can't get beyond that because they're just thinking, for God so loved the world or gave his life as a ransom for all. And they just kind of hang on that. And what happened at the Marburg Colloquy is that Zwingli gave his position and argued for you know, that memorial, the, the sign position, and so on. But Luther was hung up on those words. And that's what I think sometimes happens when it comes to the doctrine of limited atonement. I think some people who know those verses so well, many of us could rehearse many of them by memory, they would say, well, I don't hold to a position of limited atonement because of verses like that. So then consideration of a different point of view is then, if you will, limited. It's as though the pistol is fired to start the mental race of consideration, but the person doesn't leave the starting block because they figure, what's the point? It's like asking, is water wet? Of course it is. So why do we even have to talk about there being a limited atonement? We know that Jesus died for the world. So early on in our consideration of this doctrine, we will give attention to those kinds of verses. But first, let me start by introducing the identification limited atonement. Limited atonement is the L in the acronym TULIP. We've covered T, total depravity. We've covered U, unconditional election. Tonight, we consider limited atonement. So as to provide a definition of limited atonement, we could consider the following as one. Jesus' sacrificial work was purposed by God to secure salvation on behalf of God's elect alone. In other words, Jesus died for all that the Father had given him. 
Those are the ones for whom Christ died. So in that sense, you could say his redemptive work was particular. That's why many people prefer the identification particular redemption as opposed to limited atonement because his work was particular. And that work of redemption was sure. It was successful, which is why some have preferred the identification definite atonement that Christ made a definite atonement, an expiation, a propitiation, fully appeasing the wrath of God and putting away our sins and successfully reconciling His people to the Father. The bridegroom came from heaven to lay His life down for His bride, the church. So it's not as the Arminian might say that Christ's death made salvation simply possible for all men. Jesus' redemptive work had and has particular persons in view. You might even say, furthermore, Jesus' sacrificial work was not to make men savable. It was actually and successfully to save all that the Father had given Him. Can all men say, as the Apostle Paul did, I am crucified with Christ? It's one of the questions you have to ask yourself. Can that be said of all men? I am crucified with Christ. Was all men in view when Paul wrote the following words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21? For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now that verse is very important just for our consideration of this doctrine because the intent of the atonement helps us understand the extent of the atonement. If you were to look at 2 Corinthians 5, 21... We see the intent. The intent was that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So then the us, when Paul wrote, for He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, the us, the extent of the atonement, was for those who would be justified by God's grace, i.e. those God purposed to save from before the foundation of the world. Because you see the connection? The connection is He gave Christ to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So you see the intent and it's connected to the extent. But So as to provide a little bit of clarity early on, let me ask the following question then attempt to answer it. What are we disavowing with our affirmation of this doctrine? I think that will provide a little bit of clarity. Well, number one, we reject the design or that the design of the atonement was to save all people without exception. If you think the design of the atonement, the design of Jesus' redemptive sacrifice was to save all people, then you'd have to say either of two things. You'd have to say either A, God failed because not all people are or will be saved. Or you'd have to say B, that universalism is true and everyone will be saved. Two, we reject the notion that Christ paid for the sins of all unbelievers so that they, in effect, have to pay for sins in hell that are already paid in full. If Christ died for the sins of all unbelievers, then arguably that would include as well the sin of unbelief. And if you actually think it through from an Arminian position, the Arminian would then quickly become a universalist. So we reject that position. Now someone might say, 
Well, even the elect are not reconciled to God before they exercise repentance towards God and faith in Christ. So why couldn't Christ pay for the sins of everyone? And it's only those who do not believe that do not receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. To which I think the reply would be, not only, as we're going to see tonight, not only are there many texts of Scripture that speak to Jesus laying His life down for specific people. We're going to see that tonight. A number of verses. But the fact that Christ's people are not reconciled to the Father before exercising grace-granted gifts of repentance and faith does not change the fact that each one would inevitably be reconciled to the Father. See, within a view of limited atonement or particular redemption, you don't have people suffering eternal punishment for sins that have arguably already been paid for. There's no such person in that kind of construct. And I think that's important to understand. Christ died to reconcile to the Father all that the Father had given to Him. Jesus loses none that the Father has given Him. He paid for the sins of all who would believe. To use language from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 and verse 15, Christ obtained eternal redemption. We see that in Hebrews 9, 12, that Christ obtained eternal redemption. And you go on a little bit more in the verse 15, we find out how he did that. By means of death. You go on a little bit more in verse 15, and we find the end for which he did that. That those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So he obtained eternal redemption. How did he do it? He did it by means of his death. And what was the end for which he did it? That those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now interestingly, if we were to dive into Hebrews 9.15, that language there of the called while having application to all the called, all of God's people, it seems to have immediate application to Old Testament and Old Covenant believers who, to use language from verse 15, transgressed under the first covenant. Well, why am I calling your attention to that? Because Christ's death on behalf of Old Covenant believers was that. It was on behalf of all who were called, including Old Covenant believers, but not on behalf of all those who lived during Old Testament or Old Covenant times. Christ died to secure the redemption of those who were justified by faith under the Old Covenant. You wouldn't say that He died for the sins of those who were already suffering punishment for the sins that they committed who lived in Old Testament or Old Covenant times. So what about those instances of world and all? Because that's usually where a lot of people get hung up. They say, this verse says world, this verse says all. Let us walk through some of the instances where the word world is used. And I think we'll find that the use of the word world rarely, if ever, is referring to all people without exception who ever lived on the planet. So take, for instance... The opening verse of Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now we know that that did not mean every single person on the planet at that time. It meant 
those who were under Roman jurisdiction. It meant the known Roman world, as opposed to every single person who was on the planet. Take, for instance, when the Pharisees said to one another, second half of John chapter 12, verse 19, speaking of Jesus, they said, the whole world has gone after him. They certainly didn't mean every single person on the planet. They didn't mean every single person in Judea or Jerusalem either. They used hyperbole to communicate the idea of many. It's like so many people have gone after him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, there the Apostle Paul tells us, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now we know that the word world in this context does not refer to every single person who has existed or will exist or even existed at that time because you'd end up affirming the heresy of universalism. Every single person was not and is not reconciled to God. So when you hear those words, it's not talking about potentially doing this, right? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's further unpacked with what comes next, not imputing their trespasses to them. So if that meant, if the word world there meant every single person who's ever existed and so on, then you'd have to say that there's no such thing as hell because no one would have their sin reckoned to their account so as to be judged. World here, I would argue, can be properly understood as referring to not simply the Jewish world, but people from every tribe, kindred, nation, and tongue. He was reconciling the world to himself. Besides the examples above, the word world is used in a whole bunch of other ways. We could spend a good amount of time going through the examples. It could refer to the evil world system. Right? The whole world lies under the sway of the evil one, to use language from 1 John 5.19. It could be a reference to many regions on the planet, but not the entire planet. Remember, Paul told the Roman believers that their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world? So many regions, but not every single area on the planet. It can refer to the entire created order. We see that in Acts 17.24. It can be used synonymously with Gentiles. We see that in Romans chapter 11, verse 12. Suffice it to say, it would be folly to think that every time the word world is used, that it's referring to every single person without exception who exists on the planet at that time or who would ever exist. It's used in many ways and rarely, if ever, is used in that kind of way. Now, what about all? Well, again... Just like world, the word all has to be understood in light of the contexts in which it is found. Let me give you some for instances with regards to the word all. Jesus told his disciples, you will be hated by all for my namesake. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. Now this did not mean all people without exception. It didn't mean that every man, woman, and child would hate the Lord's disciples. The idea is very clearly that the hatred that the unbelieving world would have for believers and for his disciples would be vast. That's the idea of all right there. Paul said in Acts chapter 26, verse 4, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, 
all the Jews know. Now, did he mean every Jew everywhere? You know, the Jews who were scattered abroad as a result of the dispersion? Did he mean every Jew? Did he mean every Jew in the region of Judea knew of his early life? No, he's just saying essentially, like all the Jews, by and large, know about who I was and my, my doings in Judaism and so on. The idea is that many Jews knew how Paul was devoted to Judaism. In the third chapter of John's Gospel, we read that some of John's disciples told him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John chapter 3, verse 26. And again, the idea isn't every person in Judea. It's not every person in the world. The idea is that many people were coming to Jesus and were subsequently baptized by his disciples. That's the idea of what was going on. This, I think, is an important one for us to cover, too, even in our introduction portion of the night. In John's Gospel, Jesus said this, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. John chapter 12, verse 32. Now, in Christian circles, you'll sometimes hear that referenced with regards to praise. People will sometimes say, if Jesus is lifted up in praise, he will draw men and women to himself as he's being praised. That's not what this verse is talking about. You go on shortly after this, and you see it's talking about Jesus' death. He'd be lifted up on the cross. And Jesus said that if he was lifted up, he would draw all peoples to him. Now, I want you to notice a few things here. First, Jesus is not describing potentiality. He's describing actuality. Like, if I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. Now, if you say that's all people without exception, all people who would live post the cross and so on, then Jesus did not achieve what he said he would achieve because not all people have been drawn to the Son. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that if he is lifted up, he would draw all peoples, referring to all kinds of people. John, who's the author of the Gospel of John, same author of the book of Revelation, gives us a picture of what that's like when you get to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, and you see all kinds of people around the throne. People from every tribe, kindred, nation, and tongue. That's the idea. If I be lifted up, I will draw all kinds of people to me. It's the same kind of idea in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, where we're told that Christ, a little bit, Christ is used early on, but then we find out that he gave his life as a ransom for all. Well, what do you mean all? Well, you look a little bit earlier on, and Paul is telling Timothy that supplications and prayers should be made for all men, but then he shows you what he's talking about, all kinds of men. Kings, rulers, those in authority, all kinds of people, regardless of their position in society, regardless of their economic status, regardless of their gender, and so on. All peoples, all kinds of people. That's the idea of this language. So suffice it to say, that's a quick run through. We can go through many more examples. But suffice it to say this, that if you see the word world or if you see the word all, you have to be careful to nuance what exactly it means. And it is folly to just think that the uses of those words mean that all people without exception are being spoken of. There's more that could be said about those kinds of verses, but at this point will proceed to some biblical support for the doctrine of limited atonement slash particular redemption. We'll start in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, particularly Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement 
was and is the second to last feast on the Jewish calendar. The liturgy of that day, you can see all the details of it, but you could, some, you could see some of it in what I'm about to say. The liturgy of that occasion would include an appointed offering for sin, an appointed scapegoat, and the high priest that would represent God's people. Now, what I want you to understand about the Day of Atonement is what you already know. The Day of Atonement was not a Day of Atonement for the people of Philistia. It wasn't a Day of Atonement for those in Tyre or Sidon. It was a Day of Atonement that was for God's covenant people, whoever they were. Granted, yes, even Gentiles or aliens or sojourners could come and be a part of the nation of Israel and so on. But it was a Day of Atonement that was for God's people. In that regard, the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, was limited in its extent. Furthermore, think about what part of the liturgy included of that day. You see this in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 20 through 22. As part of the liturgy on that day, Aaron, who was the high priest, he would, and then obviously subsequent high priests, would lay both hands upon the head of the live goat. And on the head of the live goat, what would happen? The sins of the children of Israel would be confessed. The iniquities of the nation would be confessed. And all of their transgressions would be put upon the head of the goat. And then the goat would be sent away into the wilderness. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21. And then in the very next verse we're told, the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land. And again, I tell you, it was for the nation of Israel. It wasn't for all the peoples around the world. It wasn't for all people without exception. It was for God's covenant people. It was for the nation of Israel. So even in the Old Testament, you might say, there was a limited atonement. Seeing as the day of atonement was limited to the people of Israel, and it was the sins of the nation that were confessed and laid upon the scapegoat, not the sins of neighboring nations, yet alone the entire world. Isaiah 53 is another place where we can go, and we could spend more time here unpacking this than what we're about to, but I'll call your attention to Isaiah chapter 53 and kind of working from the back. In verse 11, we read the following. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify Many. Now keep that in mind. How is the many there to be understood? Well, very simply, who was going to be justified by the suffering servant who is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ? All the redeemed, all who would be justified by his blood. That's who the many are right there in Isaiah 53, verse 11. Well, then when you go on to verse 12 and you read the following, you can understand why you'd argue for a limited atonement from Isaiah 53. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So in verse 12, says that the suffering servant bore the sin of many, that many could be understood as the same many that he justifies in verse 11. Those who were justified are those whose sins he bore. 
Now, there are other examples that we could reference here. If you look at verse 10, we see that the suffering servant's offering of his soul for sin is stated alongside of his seeing his seed, his spiritual offspring. Look at verse 5, and you'll see language like our and so on. You'll see language like we as you get to the end of verse 5, us as you go into verse 6. So you could argue for limited atonement and particular redemption from Isaiah 53 as well. But let us look at some New Testament verses. And again, there are more that could be cited than what I'm going to share with you tonight, but let's walk through some of them. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. The angel told Joseph, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So notice the particularity of Christ's saving work. He will save his people from their sins. The angel did not say he will save all people from their sins. The angel said he will save his people. Well, then you ask the question, who are his people? You scroll back in your mind or kind of ahead to John's gospel, John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father has given him. He uses that language in John 17 as well. He uses that language in other places. All that the Father has given him, his people. Jesus' people, those that the Father has given him, the elect of God made up of Jews and Gentiles alike, that's who are in view. The lost sheep of Israel and the sheep who are not of that fold, not of the fold of Israel. Now again, also, notice the certitude here. It's not talking about potentiality, right? It's talking about certainty. He will save his people from their sins. It's not talking about Jesus just making salvation possible, and then if people jump through that window of prevenient grace that's open for them, you know, they can get in. The talk here in the scriptures is certainty. He will save his people. Too often it's spoken of in just kind of a general potentiality as opposed to being very specific. Christ came to save a people. Mission accomplished. It will be 100%. Now, a couple of verses that are often referenced in the subject of limited atonement and particular redemption found in Matthew 20, verse 28, and Matthew 26, verse 28. I want to walk through these briefly before we get to some of my um, favorite verses here. Um, but I do think these are helpful as well. Matthew 20, 28 says, this is Jesus speaking, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, many people will note that the word many is used here, as opposed to all. So that would be an argument that some people will make. They'll say, look, many is used and not all. Therefore, that argues for a particular redemption and limited atonement. And what I want you to know is that you have to go a little bit deeper than that. Because there are places where many is used, and we know that it refers to all. Think of Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Who is the many there? All people, with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So many in a certain context could be all. And so you say, well, how do I know that many is many here and many is not all? Well, I think there are some hints within the text of that. Uh, first, I would tell you that when a ransom was paid for someone, usually in the context of a slave, let's say a prisoner of war or something like that, when the ransom was paid, they would go free. If the ransom was paid for all, 
all people without exception, then by necessity all would go free because there would be no more sin debt. Even unbelief would be paid for. So if you understand what ransom means, a payment, and as a consequence of that payment, individuals would be set free, then you'd say, well, that's going to lead to universalism. So I don't think that's what's being spoken of here. Furthermore, I'd say there's a connection um, between ransom and redemption. Those for whom Jesus paid the ransom are those for whom he achieved redemption. And there are places in the Old Testament where you can see this connection. You go to Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8, clear connection between ransom and redemption. Ransom's mentioned in verse 7. Redemption's mentioned in verse 8. So those who are ransomed are those who are redeemed. Additionally, just as a neat aside, but I do think it's helpful for us to know, when you read here that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, that Greek preposition that's used there, translated as for, is the Greek word anti. Anti. We usually hear anti and we think against. But as a Greek preposition, it can be rendered as instead of. You have right here the idea of substitutionary atonement. That Jesus stood in the place of certain individuals. What individuals? Those that he would purchase as a ransom with his blood. Those who would ultimately be redeemed. So I do think you can argue from, the, from here concerning limited atonement and particular redemption. Briefly, I call your attention to Matthew 26, verse 28. Jesus said there, for this is my blood of the new covenant. This is where he is instituting the Lord's Supper. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So again, we have the use of the word many. And I think what is particularly helpful here is to see what the many receive. His blood is shed for many for, to this end, for this purpose, for the remission of sins. So based upon the language here, the many would be those who ultimately receive forgiveness. John chapter 10, beginning at verse 11. I'm going to, I'm going to read verse 11 and I'm going to read verse 15. And then we're going to read on a little bit further as well. In verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd... The good shepherd lays his life down or gives his life for the sheep. says something like that again in verse 15. He says, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. At a minimum, you would have to say, his sacrificial work is designed for a specific group. Namely, his sheep. He knows his sheep. Going back to previous studies, right? That language of knowing, connoting relationship. He knows his sheep. He knows them by name. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. John chapter 10, verse 3. They know his voice and they follow him. John chapter 10, verse 4. And it is for them that he lays his life down. Now in John chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus appears to be speaking of the Gentiles when he said, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. He appears to be talking about Gentiles. I have sheep beyond the fold of Israel. I have to bring them in from the nations, and there'll be one fold, and there'll be one shepherd. 
Now, that argues for particular redemption greatly in itself, just looking at those verses. But when you read on, you find something very interesting. In this same chapter, not far from what we just read, beginning at verse 23, we see that it was the Feast of Dedication. And Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's porch, and Jews surrounded him, and they said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now Jesus responded to them, and he said the following, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep, as I said to you. So within the very same chapter, not many verses away from Jesus saying, I lay my life down for the sheep, and I have sheep that are not of this fold. Them I must also bring in. Then not long after that, he looks at these Jewish antagonists who say to him, how long will you keep us in doubt? Tell us plainly. And he looks at them and he says, you are not my sheep. There's a sharp distinction right there in that very chapter. And you see the causal nature of them not being a sheep, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. John chapter 17. There is what's often referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. I call your attention to two verses, particularly in this chapter, verse 9 and verse 20. So during Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says, I pray for them, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, a little bit later on in verse 20, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, Jesus is praying here as the high priest of his people. And as the high priest of his people, he's praying for the apostles. He's praying for you for those who would believe on him through their word, but even in his high priestly prayer, he's making a distinction. I do not pray for the world. Who am I praying for? As the high priest, I am praying for my people. I'm praying for those that the Father has given me. I'm praying for the apostles. I'm praying for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, this is what I want you to see. Connect John 17 with what's going to come. Jesus, as the high priest, was praying. When you think of the high priest's responsibilities in the Old Covenant, they'd make intercession for the people, but they'd also offer up sacrifice for the people. So now, if you have a particular redemption view, you could see congruence between Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 and his priestly sacrifice that is coming on the cross You say, that makes sense. Jesus is praying for his people, for those who would believe on him through the apostles' words, and then he's going to die for his sheep, the very people that he was praying for in John chapter 17. But if you lack a limited atonement slash particular redemption view, you're disconnecting, you're creating incongruence with Jesus' priestly work. You're saying he's praying for one group, and he's excluding a certain group from his prayer, but then he's going to die for the group that he prayed for and the group that he didn't pray for. You're creating an unnecessary incongruence, I would argue, as opposed to just saying, no, it makes sense that there's particularity in his praying, as we clearly see, and that there would be particularity in the purpose of his forthcoming act of sacrifice. Both were on behalf of his people. A few more verses. 
Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Now that kind of language, by the way, can make you do a double take. Say the church of God which he purchased with his own blood? Yes. Although God is spirit and doesn't have a body, we know that. The Father and the Son are one, and the eternally begotten Son of God took on flesh, so that when the Son of God took on flesh, Paul could say that it was the blood of God that was shed. Well, who did God purchase with the sacrifice of His Son? You're told right there in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, He purchased the church of God with the blood of His Son, with His own blood. Romans chapter 8, verses 32 through 34. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Who's the all there? Delivered him up for us all. There's the word all. Who's the all? You find out who the all are in verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The all are God's elect. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. We looked at this earlier. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Who is the us? Those that would become the righteousness of God in him. And again, the intent of the sacrificial work of Christ, the intent of the atonement, defines, I would argue, the extent of the atonement. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just also as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Is everyone Christ's bride? No. Church. He gave himself for her, the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. For God did not appoint us to wrath. That part of the verse implies the doctrine of reprobation. To say there are some that in God's sovereignty he's chosen to pass over who are appointed to wrath. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Who is the us? Those who were appointed to obtain salvation. Those are the ones for whom Christ died, that whether we awake or sleep, we should live together with Him. There are other verses. Hebrews 2, 17. For the purposes of time, I'll reference them. Hebrews 9, verse 15, verse 28. Revelation 5.9, where that song is sung, you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Note the language. It's not that he redeemed every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He redeemed people to God by his blood out of, ek, out of every Tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So those are just some of the verses that speak to the grand purpose of God. To save those that He had given to the Son through the redemption that would be wrought through the Lord Jesus Christ. I call your attention to two other points in brief as we prepare to close before we get to our Q&A time. If you were just to go through the Scriptures, and I think for some of you this will happen now. When you go through the scriptures, now you're going to start to see a lot of we, a lot of us, a lot of our, and a lot of you language with respect to salvation. 
You can see a lot of verses like that. But what I want to show you briefly is that there are so many verses. I would love to include them all in your notes, but you just have a little bit of a sampling there. But sometimes what you'll see is that you see these kind of purpose statements connected with those kind of verses. I'll give you some for instances. In Galatians 1.4, we're told that Christ, quote, gave himself for our sins. Now here comes the purpose statement. That he might deliver us from this present evil age. So who are the ones for whom Christ gave himself? The ones that he would deliver from this present evil age. Christians. Those who are born again and redeemed. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. I'm just going to read to you parts of it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And we know how did he do that? By becoming a curse for us. But now you get to the purpose statements. I'll go to the last one that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So he redeemed us. Who's the us? Those who would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Christ died for our sins, the just for the unjust. To do what? To bring us to God. See, there's purpose connected to his sacrifice. It's not just to offer up this general potentiality that anyone could seize if they jump through the window of opportunity. The idea is he's accomplishing reconciliation, redemption, and bringing people to God through his blood. I'll give you one other, um, one other passage here. You might want to read it on your own a little bit later. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 18 through 21. In verse 20, we're told that Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Foreordained to be what? Just look in the previous verses. To be that lamb who was offered without blemish or spot. That lamb who would shed his precious blood. Back to verse 20. He was the lamb who was appointed to be the lamb before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. For you. That's why he was made manifest. Appointed before the foundation of the world to be that. But in these last times, he became that. In the fullness of time, he took on flesh. He would go to the cross. And why did he do that? Peter says, he did that for you. Then you say, who is the you? You scroll back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. The elect. The chosen, those that the Father had given to the Son. And finally, I just want to call your attention to the Trinitarian basis for particularity in Jesus' redemptive work. You know, if you have an Arminian view of um, salvation and the atoning sufferings of Christ, the redemptive sufferings of Christ, then there's, there's all kinds of disconnects that happen. You say, well, the Father looks down the corridors of time and he elects those that he knows would choose him that he knew would choose him. So you have the father electing a specific group of people. But then you have the son dying for everyone, all people without exception. And then you have the Holy Spirit giving new birth in time to what people? In an Arminian view, at least some Arminians would argue, well, those who respond to his wooing, those who respond to his drawing. And you see incongruence in the work of the Trinity with that kind of view. Whereas with the limited atonement, particular redemption view, you see congruence between all the persons of the Trinity. The Father has elected and chosen to give a people to the Son before the foundation of the world, not according to their willing or doing, but according to His own good purpose, purposed in Christ Jesus before time began. 
Jesus comes and he gives his life for who? His sheep, his bride, his church, the elect, the same individuals that the Father gave him. And who does the Spirit give new birth to in time? Remember, the Spirit's like the wind in that ministry. The wind blows where it will. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. John chapter 3, verse 8. And the Spirit gives new birth to all that the Father had given to the Son and all for whom the Son died. There is consistency and congruence in that view of the redemptive work of Christ and all persons of the Trinity in agreement. So I conclude with reminding you that God's redemptive work is sure. That Christ's work of redemption is perfect, sufficient, and it is accomplished. And you, Christian, can have assurance of your salvation. Proclaim the gospel. Christ has people scattered throughout the world. Fan the flame of your passion for finding them and seeing them see Him. Because you know that they are the ones, just like you, for whom Christ came and gave His life. His sheep. Let's go to our God in prayer. Father, thank You for Your Word. Oh, how amazing Your Word is. Thank You for this love that surpasses knowledge. Thank You, Lord, that we could, by Your grace, bow the knee to Your sovereign will and we could see the greatness and the the depths and the heights, and though albeit, albeit to a limited degree, because we know that we are creaturely, and we know that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge, but we nonetheless see the great love that you have for your people and the great love that Christ had for his church in laying his life down for her. I pray, Father, as we continue this evening in our contemplation of this doctrine, Lord, that you would grant us understanding, and Father, above all, that you would fan the flames of praise and appreciation for you and for what you have done through your Son and by your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.